Chapter One of The Art of Travel. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Anna Simon. The Art of Travel by Sir Francis Galton. Chapter One Preparatory Inquiries To Those Who Meditate Travel. Qualifications for a Traveller. If you have health, a great craving for adventure, at least a moderate fortune, and can set your heart on a definite object, which all travellers do not think impracticable, then travel by all means. If, in addition to these qualifications, you have scientific taste and knowledge, I believe that no career in time of peace can offer to you more advantages than that of a traveller. If you have not independent means, you may still turn travelling to excellent account, for experience shows it often leads to promotion. Nay, some men support themselves by travel. They explore pasture land in Australia, they hunt for ivory in Africa, they collect specimens of natural history for sale, or they wander as artists. Reputed Dangers of Travel A young man of good constitution, who is bound on an enterprise sanctioned by experienced travellers, does not run very great risks. Let those who doubt refer to the history of the various expeditions encouraged by the Royal Geographical Society, and they will see how few deaths have occurred, and of those deaths how small a proportion among young travellers. Savages rarely murder newcomers. They fear their guns, and have a superstitious awe of the white man's power. They require time to discover that he is not very different to themselves, and is easily to be made away with. Ordinary fever are seldom fatal to the sound and elastic constitution of youth, which usually has power to resist the adverse influences of two or three years of wild life. Advantages of travel It is no slight advantage to a young man to have the opportunity for distinction which travel affords. If he plans his journey among scenes and places likely to interest the stay-at-home public, he will probably achieve a reputation that might well be envied by wiser men who have not had his opportunities. The scientific advantages of travel are enormous to a man prepared to profit by them. He sees nature working by herself without the interference of human intelligence, and he sees her from new points of view. He has also undisturbed leisure for the problems which perpetually attract his attention by their novelty. The consequence is that, though scientific travellers are comparatively few, yet out of their ranks a large proportion of the leaders in all branches of science has been supplied. It is one of the most grateful results of a journey to the young traveller to find himself admitted, on the ground of his having so much of special interest to relate, into the society of men with whose names he has long been familiar, and whom he had reverenced as his heroes. To obtain information the centres of information respecting rude and savage countries are the geographical, ethnological, and anthropological societies at home and abroad. Anyone intending to travel should put himself into communication with the secretary and become a member of one or more of these societies. He will not only have access to books and maps, but will be sure to meet with sympathy, encouragement, and intelligent appreciation. If he is about to attempt a really bold exploration under fair conditions of success, he will no doubt be introduced to the best living authorities in the country to which he is bound, and will be provided with letters of introduction to the officials at the port where he is to disembark, that will smooth away many small difficulties, 
and give him a recognized position during his travels. Information on scientific matters. Owing to the unhappy system of education that has hitherto prevailed, by which boys acquire a very imperfect knowledge of the structure of two dead languages, and none at all of the structure of the living world, most persons preparing to travel are overwhelmed with the consciousness of their incapacity to observe with intelligence the country they are about to visit. I have been very frequently begged by such persons to put them in the way of obtaining a rudimentary knowledge of the various branches of science, and have constantly made inquiries. But I regret to say that I have been unable to discover any establishment where suitable instruction in natural science is to be obtained by persons of the age and station of most travellers. Nor do I know of any persons who advertise private tuition in any of its branches, whose names I might therefore be at liberty to publish, except Professor Tennant, who gives private lessons in mineralogy at his shop in the Strand, where the learner might easily familiarize himself with the ordinary minerals and fossils, and where collections might be purchased for after-reference. An intending traveller could readily find naturalists who would give lessons in museums and botanical gardens, adapting their instruction to his probable wants, and he would thus obtain some familiarity with the character of the principal plants and animals amongst which he would afterwards be thrown. If he has no private means of learning the names of such persons, I should recommend him to write to some public professor, stating all particulars, and begging the favour of his advice. The use of the sextant may be learned at various establishments in the city and east end of London, where the junior officers of merchant vessels receive instruction at small cost. A traveller could learn their addresses from the maker of a sextant. He might also apply at the rooms of the Royal Geographical Society, 1 Savile Row, London, where he would probably receive advice suitable to his particular needs, and possibly some assistance of a superior order to that which the instructors of whom I spoke profess to afford. That well-known volume, the Admiralty Manual of Scientific Inquiry, has been written to meet the wants of uninformed travellers, and a small pamphlet, Hints to Travellers, has been published with the same object, by the Royal Geographical Society. It is procurable at their rooms. There is, perhaps, no branch of natural history in which a traveller could do so much, without more information than is to be obtained from a few books, than that of the science of man. He could see the large collection of skulls in the College of Surgeons, and the flint and bone implements in the British Museum, the Christie Museum, and elsewhere, and he should buy the principal modern works on anthropology, to be carefully re-studied on his outward voyage. Conditions of Success and Failure in Travel An exploring expedition is daily exposed to a succession of accidents, any one of which might be fatal to its further progress. The cattle may at any time stray, die or be stolen, water may not be reached, and they may perish, one or more of the men may become seriously ill, or the party may be attacked by natives. Hence the success of the expedition depends on a chain of eventualities, each link of which must be a success. For if one link fails at that point, there must be an end of further advance. It is therefore well, especially at the outset of a long journey, not to go hurriedly to work, nor to push forward too thoughtlessly. Give the men and cattle time to become acclimatized, make the bush your home, and avoid unnecessary hardships. Interest yourself chiefly in the progress of your journey, and do not look forward to its end with eagerness. 
it is better to think of a return to civilization not as an end to hardship and a haven from ill but as a close to an adventurous and pleasant life in this way risking little and insensibly creeping on you will make connections and learn the capabilities of the country as you advance all which will be found invaluable in the case of a hurried or disastrous return and thus when some months have passed by you will look back with surprise on the great distance travelled over for if you average only three miles a day at the end of the year you will have advanced twelve hundred which is a very considerable exploration the fable of the tortoise and the hare is peculiarly applicable to travellers over wide and unknown tracts it is a very high merit to accomplish a long exploration without loss of health of papers or even of comfort physical strength of leader powerful men do not necessarily make the most eminent travellers it is rather those who take the most interest in their work that succeed the best as a huntsman says it is the nose that gives speed to the hound dr kane who was one of the most adventurous of travellers was by no means a strong man either in health or muscle good temper tedious journeys are apt to make companions irritable one to another but under hard circumstances a traveller does his duty best who doubles his kindliness of manner to those about him and takes harsh words gently and without retort he should make it a point of duty to do so it is at those times very superfluous to show too much punctiliousness about keeping up one's dignity and so forth since the difficulty lies not in taking up quarrels but in avoiding them reluctant servants great allowance should be made for the reluctant cooperation of servants they have infinitely less interest in the success of the expedition than their leaders for they derive but little credit from it they argue thus why should we do more than we knowingly undertook and strain our constitutions and peril our lives in enterprises about which we are indifferent it will perhaps surprise a leader who having ascertained to what frugal habits a bush servant is inured learns on trial how desperately he clings to those few luxuries which he has always had thus speaking generally a cape servant is happy on meat coffee and biscuit but if the coffee or biscuit has to be stopped for a few days he is ready for mutiny End of chapter 1